0: Welcome back to the Data Stack Show. We have an extremely exciting guest today, Ionis from Netflix. And If you're in the world of data and technology and open source tooling, there's a really good chance that you've heard of Netflix because they have so many projects that have become extremely popular and uh, have really done some amazing things. So. This is going to be a very technical conversation, probably some of of it over my head, but it's rare that we get a chance to talk with someone who's had such close involvement with projects like this. Costas, what are the burning questions in your mind that you want to ask Ionis about working on the data side of Netflix? Yeah, first of all, what I
1: think is going to be very interesting is that Yannis is uh, actually managing two teams over there. One is dedicated to anything that has to do with media storage, And the other team is dedicated to syncing data between the different data systems that they have for more kind of analytics use cases. So it's very interesting. I mean, it's quite rare to find someone who has experienced this kind of different, diverse use cases of manipulating and working with data. And it will be amazing to hear from him what commonalities are there or like what differences. So that's one thing, uh, which I think is uh, super interesting. The other thing, of course, is scale. I mean, Netflix is a huge company dealing with millions of viewers. They have like very unique uh, requirements and needs around the data that they work with, something that's not easy to find in other companies. So I think that would be great to hear from him what it means to operate data teams inside uh, such uh, a big organization, not in terms of like the people involved necessarily, but at least in terms of like the data that needs to be handled. And of course, all the use cases and the products that they build on top of data. I mean, everyone knows and talks and make comments around the recommendation uh, algorithms, for example, and that Netflix has. And of course, all these are driven and supported by the teams that Yanis is managing. So I think it's going to be super interesting to learn from his experience.
0: I agree. I think the other thing that will be interesting is to hear about some of the tools that they use that people might not be as familiar with that are popular products, but they get so much attention for things that they've built. uh, It'll be great to learn more about some of the more common tools that they use internally. So why don't we jump in and uh, start learning about Netflix. We have a really special guest today who I'm so excited to learn from Iannis from Netflix. He's a senior engineering manager and we're going to learn about the way that they do things at Netflix and the way that they build things. Ionis, thank you so much for taking time to join us on the show today.
2: Thank you so much Eric for having me in Costa.
1: Yeah, that's great to have you here today, Yanni. For me it's there's another reason actually, it's not just I mean the stories that you can share with us from Netflix which obviously is going to be interesting for everyone, but for me it's also important because you are the first Greek person that we are having on this show, so you are another expat from Greece, as I am, so double happy today for this episode, and I'm really looking uh, forward to discuss and learn about your experience at Netflix. You know, I found out
2: over the last few years that there are like a lot of people working in the data space that are Greeks. I don't know if this is for a specific reason, or maybe they had like great faculty members in Greece in the data space that resulted them in working in this, but you know, there's a lot, so maybe you'll have more in the near future.
1: Yeah, yeah. Actually, that's very interesting. I don't know exactly why this is true, but first of all, there's like a quite big team in Redshift. Like there's a kind of like Greek mafia there and the engineering of Redshift. Snowflake has quite a few Greeks also working there. And there are many, I mean, you are, you know more about like the academic space here, but from what I know, there are also like quite a few like Greeks in the academic space in the United States working on database systems. So it looks like the Greeks have a thing around databases, databases and uh, DevOps and SREs also. They are also quite well known for having like good SREs. Yeah. So that's also interesting. Yeah. Cool. So uh, let's start Yanni, can you do a quick introduction? Tell us a few things about you and your background, how, what happened, what you were doing before you joined Netflix, and of course, like, what is your role there and what you're doing at Netflix today? Yeah, absolutely. I'm kind of a
2: little of a different career than most people in the Bay Area. I joined Netflix about five, five and a half years ago out of academia. So I was a faculty member at Purdue University before I came to Netflix. Well, before that, I was I was a software engineer as well. So for me, coming to the Bay Area about five and a half years was, was a new thing. I joined Netflix as a senior software engineer, you know, working uh, mainly on the key value stores. And you know, over the years, for the last three years, I have been managing parts of the infrastructure, especially, you know, starting from the key value store, mostly databases, and then recently moving to a new organization or about a year ago called the Storage and Data Integrations. Our our focus is uh, is like building integration solutions and storage in the and, and also like storage solutions for 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 whatever the company needs for us to provide.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. I know that actually there are like two parts and two teams under your organization. Let's say one that is like working with the data storage platform and one which is the data integration platform, and you have like two separated teams and. If I remember correctly, and correct me if uh, I'm wrong on that, the data storage platform is more responsible about having an overall like uh, storage solution for the company, which includes like how you also store your media, which is of course like a very big thing in Netflix, right? And then there's also the data integration platform, which from what I understand works mainly in how the different data st- systems can exchange and uh, sync data between them. Is this correct? Yeah, that's
2: correct. I'm surprised at the background you have done. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. You know, on the storage side, you know, we've been we've seen like, you know, we're ingesting more media assets out of our productions, and those productions happen, you know, anywhere around the globe. So, you know, my team is responsible for some of the you know transfer solutions and store also how we store the data. Most of the data end up being stored like in the final cut on S3 and in encrypted. So my team has been responsible for like services on how we transfer, store the data, how we index the data, how we encrypt the data. In fact, like from the time they arrive to Netflix up to the time, they, they are stored in an object storage in, in our infrastructure. So those systems, you know, of course, you know, in the last few years, as, as companies is growing a lot and becoming one of the largest studios, you know, have seen a great evolution. And, and that's one of the reasons we actually start you know, building solutions in this space and, and the other side of the team, the integration team, is mainly focusing on building integrations between like different data systems like you know, Cassandra, AWS Aurora, Postgres, MySQL, with, with other systems, like you know, sending the data to Elasticsearch or sending the data to a data warehouse. And you know, that both teams actually you know, involve, um, evolved in the last few years out of the needs of the company to invest in this space. An example would be. You know, we're building a lot of services, especially on the content side that, you know, we were using um, as one source of truth. And then we having another database to, for example, index the data like Elasticsearch. And, you know, we're chatting about ways that we can effectively synchronize those those data systems. And a few years back, there was not a good solution. You know, we're just using some scripts or using some jobs over the weekend. And then we thought, you know, what's the best possible way for us to build a solution that will kind of synchronize those two systems. And then eventually as we evolved as a team, we started supporting like more systems like moving data from Airtable and Google Sheets to to data warehouses. And also like moving data from data warehouses to key value stores for, for example, our machine learning team to do online machine learning. So yeah, this is how we effectively form those two teams right now. And, you know, new teams create exciting areas to work on.
1: Yeah, that's super interesting. Actually, before we move like into more details about the technical side of things, from an organizational point of view, like these two teams, I mean, from someone from the outside, it sounds like they are working like on quite different things. I mean, okay, it's data again, but very, very different types of data. And I assume that inside the organization, the Let's say the consumers of this data are also different, right? So how does this work in terms of like managing these teams? Are there like on a technology or organizational level similarities between the problems that are solved? What do they have in common and what's the difference between these two? And I guess that this is very interesting for me because it's quite unique. And of course, it's also because it has to do with being in Netflix and you have like a studio there and you have like the scale of Netflix. But I'm usually, you know, I meet data teams that they work mainly on database systems, more structured data. So I would like to hear from you what's the commonalities between the two problems and what are also the differences and the challenges that you have seen like by managing these two teams. Yeah, that's a great question.
2: You know, both teams have evolved from the needs of the company in the emerging content space. So like we both, both the two teams have been working, focusing a lot on the content space. And you know, while the technologies are building different, they have a few common things. The first thing, most important thing is this is they're solving like immediate business problems, right? And you know, given of course, like the status of the team and, and the evolution of the team. And the second aspect of, uh, of both teams is they're building what we call high leverage data platform solutions. So they're building solutions that can be used by, by many different teams. Now, in regards to the other aspect of your question about the challenges in leading two teams, I think there are challenges, of course, but, you know, we have spent a significant amount of time in, you know, in hiring and entertaining, you know, really amazing talent in the team. And, and, you know, eventually that becomes a little easier for the manager to kind of manage the team. And, you know, of course, like over the last few years, we have evolved some of the practice or have shared some of the practices within the team in terms of, you know, the way we do product management and project management. And, you know, we have found some interesting efficiencies and organizational structures as a group which effectively makes, you know, everyone's life easier, right? The other aspect also is that, you know, looking about pretty much the identity of a Netflix engineer, which is usually on, on the senior software engineer, we're hiring like people who are great in communication, great in, in terms of like, you know, building products, but they're also hiring people that are great in terms of how they, you know, deal with customers, they deal with partners, and we deal with cross functionally so that's why you know usually that the management aspect on the manager becomes a little easier, and that's one of the reasons I would say that you know,
1: you know my job has been extremely hard to manage that wonderful team. <laughs> that's great. That's great to hear. So can you share a little bit more about like the structure of the teams that exist there? Like first of all, are the structure between the two teams like identical, or there are any difference there? And share a little bit more information about like the size, the roles and stuff like that, just to get like an idea of like how a company like Netflix has evolved in like managing this kind of uh, problems.
2: Yeah, I would say that, uh, you know, we're not definitely not the normal team that you see in other platform teams in Netflix. Again, a lot of that has been uh, part of the like quick evolution of the team. So I think the, one of the teams is, is about, I think, if I recall correctly like 12 engineers or so, and the other side of the team is about five engineers. So mainly on the storage space, we have done a little more investment than the integration space in terms of like the size. But you know, to some extent, both teams are working uh, cross-functionally with many other um, departments in the company. So you, know, you may think that you know we are building a product as a team, but we're not. We're usually you know, building products in collaboration with many other partners. And again, this is an artifact, as I said, of, of the need of many teams to jump in and solve those business problems. And the fact that we, you know, we were a little more lean and agile in terms of how we do those practices. And of course, there are like many other teams at Netflix that, you know, they actually, as you said before, they work in a specific problem. Like, you know, one team may do the you know, warehouses, the other team may do database, the other team may do like streaming platforms and, and so forth. So, yeah, we we
1: are, I guess, the odd on out to some extent. It's very interesting. I mean, it's... <sighs> I mean, it's surprising for me how lean the teams are, and uh, for the size of the company. And find this very, very, very interesting. Cool. So, I mean, my interest is more on around the integration, the data integration team to be honest, also because of my background and like the stuff that I have done like in my life working. But before we move there and we can discuss like further about it, can you give us like some more information, like technical information around like the data storage platform that you have, especially for the media? I think it's a very unique problem that you are solving there on a global scale. As you said, you mentioned that like you have production teams all over the world. And I think it would be great to know a little bit more about what kind of technologies you are using. And what are also the use cases? How the teams are interacting with this data, and what's the lifecycle of this data?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, so we as you said, we have productions anywhere on the globe. We're ingesting data into our infrastructure, in the storage infrastructure, through either like people uploading the data. At Netflix, we provide some sort of an upload manager, and they, they, there is a UI that people can use to effectively upload the assets. We're also like you know providing. We plan to provide you know very soon like a file system user space where people can actually store the data and effectively the data will be back to the cloud. You can think about it like, you know, Dropbox for media assets, I would say. And then, you know, we also have like ways that people can upload the data through, you know, different APIs. And finally, you know, there are like, there are productions that even upload the data through like Snowball devices. You know, those big suitcases that AWS provides that, you know, if eventually the data are being stored in S3, but in our case, you know, in all these cases, in the end of the day, the data, you know, are encrypted, you know, and they are stored in, in a specific format that we use on AWS S3. That's where they finally get into. And, you know, and while, you know, the data being transferred, we also like pretty much indexing each of these files. So, you know, we know like, you know, what's the size of the file, you know, what's the metadata of the file. And then, you know, we can even group files together and create file sessions, or if we can group files together and what? Pretty much we call on the media industry side the assets where you know an asset can be let's say a movie right and this is represented by like many different files and a lot of that then you have like number of other services that are using those you know files and folder services those metadata to some extent to generate you know any kind of business need they have right and this is how at a high level kind of the storage team is organized as a storage team, we also like offer some other products like we offer like a file system as a service you know, there are places in the community that also use like the AWS file systems, but we also offer, offer our, like, files and service, which is based on Ceph. And as I said, our team is also important, in, you know, is
0: managing the way
2: we store the data on S3 as well.
0: Anis, what one question for you on file storage. And I thought of this when you mentioned groups of assets, and I may be thinking about this incorrectly, but do you... So, you know, you serve ads in a dynamic way on certain content. How are those files managed? Because that can change depending on the context of the user. Are the ad assets and the actual sort of media assets of like the show or movie or piece of content that the, that the user's consuming, are those stored together? And if not, are there challenges around sort of delivering those in a dynamic way?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. First of all, I, I think that Netflix does not offer advertisements on, on the platform, but you know, the kind of the area that you know, we have been focusing on is more of how we ingest media assets to Netflix, not on how we stream the media assets to Netflix. The, the streaming side is handled by a different team, which is the Open Connect organization, which you know we have caches distributed around the globe where you know when you click to play a movie effectively get the content from that cache our team is is mainly focusing right now the time that the data arrive from production to Netflix up to the time that you know they get you know we do any internal post production activities like encoding and so forth
0: interesting and one one follow up question to that would be so 5 years plus at Netflix has the has the file or sort of compression component of the actual assets themselves changed in that time period you know i know with sort of heavy assets like video compression and file format you know are concerns what changes have you seen from that standpoint and has it affected the way that you store that data
2: you know, I am not sure. <laughs> I would say the, the honest answer to that from, I don't think we're compressing right now, data and the way we store them. Of course, like they're, you know, they can use file format. Like they can use like, you know, depending on the resolution they have been encoded and so forth, or being captured by the cameras. But I don't think that we're actually compressing right now the data before we store them or object storage. This is probably something that we should be looking at, right? But, you know, I'm also not sure about, you know, the efficiencies we can get in terms of compression. So, yeah, kind of like I'm not sure about that area, to be honest.
1: So, Yanni, if I understand correctly, the parts of your work in terms of the life cycle of the productions in Netflix starts from the production. I mean, when the content is actually captured... And it ends when it goes through production and also probably post-production, and then you're done, right? Then it's another team that is uh, responsible of, about taking this content and actually uh, figuring out how it has to be streamed and delivered to the end user. Is this correct?
2: Yeah, that's 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 correct. But it's not only about you know doing that from the production. You know, of course, the productions can can do whatever they really like as well in some cases, but. It's also like, you know, there can be like post-production vendors that may use our ecosystem. So, you know, they might like VFX artists can use our systems or even animation space or even like post-production, other post-production vendors can use it. So it can be used by like different partners, I would say. And, you know, a lot of that is also to some extent, some of them are abstracted from us because they're actually using some of the higher level like business logic applications that the company has built. You know, usually it comes to us when it becomes like you know, like when a file arrives to Netflix, then it becomes like an index, an indexable ecosystem
1: for us to use. So, a bit of like a, a more technical questions on that. You mentioned two things about these assets: one is indexing, and the other is encryption. So, let's start with indexing. When you say indexing, you are talking about indexing the metadata of these assets, or you also perform some other analysis on the video itself that it can be searchable or uh... so,
2: yeah that's a good question. For us, which you know we're a platform team, we're like a low-level platform team. You know, we are actually for the file itself. We keep metadata, of course. Metadata, of course we keep an ID for each of the files. And through that ID we can characterize the files themselves. And of course like within that ID, we keep like a structured a structured format about you know the metadata of the file itself. So for example, when you want to see like how many files have been stored for a specific production, you can actually you know, use that ecosystem to derive those statistics. And then after that, we actually send the data to S3 and then we kind of encrypt the objects. So, and then we have our own like key management service that effectively takes the data and encrypts those data. And then we store them on, on S3 eventually. Yeah, and then we keep also like some form of metadata for the objects we store on S3 as well.
1: Okay, so this indexing happens where and where these indices are stored like and searchable. Is this part of S3 again? Or like you have a different kind of technology where this indexing happens and then it's exposed like, to the users for searching and whatever other use cases you have?
2: Yeah, so in terms of the files, we are actually having a service that kind of does that. And then this is backed by, it used to be backed by a graph database in the past, which was based on TitanDB, or like the most modern Janus graph. We recently replaced that with using CockroachDB, and then there is some indexing capabilities of that through Elasticsearch. And then the metadata for how we store the data effectively on on AWS S3, we're actually using Cassandra cluster. And of course, we also have Elasticsearch cluster for, for indexing the data.
1: Oh, that's very interesting. How did you decide to use CockroachDB, by the way? I mean, there are some qualities of CockroachDB that we appreciated.
2: And, you know, as we want to effectively make some of these services more global, the ability to have like distributed transactions became fairly important for these services. So, you know, we, we thought that, you know, Cockroach is like more what we call a new SQL database that provides those new capabilities. And therefore, you know, it's also like it was interesting for us because it provides the guard protocol is based on Postgres. So, it was kind of like fairly easier for us, you know, people didn't understand SQL. And so it became like an an easy transition for us from like a TitanDB interface, which was, which we initially thought was great, but then effectively understood that the level of nestings between like different files are not that many. So, that's why eventually we decided CoreOSDB.
1: Oh, that's very interesting. You are like one of the first. I mean, I'm I'm aware of CockroachDB and I'm following like their development, but it's very interesting to hear from someone who's using like in the production environment. So that's why I wanted to ask, and I didn't want to miss the opportunity to ask about it. That's great. So second question, because I said that one is the indexing, the other is the encryption. So how important is encryption, and how do you perform encryption efficiently? on such a large scale? Because I assume that if we're talking about um, uh, uncompressed media files, we are talking about like huge volumes of data. So how does this work and what kind of of overhead it adds to the whole platform?
2: You know, it's it's definitely like, you know, it's definitely like a lot of media assets at, at the petabyte scale, but at the same time, you know, the speed in which we are like we receive the assets is not like, that huge that you can expect let's say from a let's say direct to consumer case because this is like more on the enterprise software side right so in that case the speed is is less of importance though it is important in, in many cases when you know we have to do a turnaround pretty fast for a production so you know for us it's important because you know we want to make sure that you know we store our data in a secure way and then you know even the, the access mechanism of the data you know is, is fairly controlled right so We'll make sure that you know whoever access the data is, is is has the right privilege to do that. So the data cannot be viewed by anybody external to that. So that's why we kind of focus a lot on the encryption side of, of the data. And of course, like we have different formats that we store the data, encoding formats, and of course, like each one of them is encrypted
1: as well. So Yanni, just to understand a little bit better, like the way that you have implemented this is like as we consider let's say a file system that itself Implements encryption, or you encrypt the object itself, like on top of the file system.
2: Yeah, so we encrypt the actual object itself that is being stored on is being stored on AWS. But the way we are gonna present the data to a user could be through like a UI in a file format, or could be through a file system in user space. And those data, the way we're gonna see them, are not gonna be encrypted, right? You know, you're gonna think you're using a normal like file system and you're doing like normal interactions as you would do with, let's say, an NFS mount on your laptop, right? And you just see the data. But of course, in order to get the data, you'll have to get the proper you know, privileges and have the proper access to the proper project and so forth. So from the user perspective, let's say from the artist perspective, they are just seeing a file system. But the way that actual data is stored on the cloud is encrypted,
1: right? Oh, that's super interesting. And... The appropriate like user management that you have built, and like the access management and all that stuff. Like, do you use technologies from AWS to do that, like IAM or something, or it's something that you have built like internally? We use, we use IAM, IAM, IAM. Uh, but
2: I-A-M course, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but of course, there's you know a number of like internal services that our information security team has built, in order to you know to that are like specialized for the Netflix business itself.
1: Right. Okay. I think enough questions for the data storage platform. As I said, I didn't intend like, to ask so many questions around that, but it was super interesting. And like every one of your answers actually brought in like, more questions. So let's move forward to some other questions. So I have a question. I mean, I've seen that Netflix is quite active in terms of open source. And when I say active in open source, both in terms of like how you adopt open source internally, and I think we've heard like exams of technologies already, but also by contributing back to the open source community, let's say. What's the reason for that? Like, okay, I understand like why you use the tools, although I'd like, like to hear also your opinion on that, like why you prefer like to use open source solutions, but what's the relationship that Netflix has with open source and why you decided like to do that and what's the value um, that you see not only as an organization, but you personally as Yannis for that?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to probably focus a little on the data platform perspective uh, for this question, but you know, Netflix kind of follows like a balanced approach. There are a, a number of systems that of course we're building in house. There are also like a number of users of many open source projects, you know, like Apache Cassandra, Elasticsearch, Kafka, Flink, and many others. And, you know, we have also open sourced a number of our own solutions like, you know, Metacat, you know, Iceberg, you know, EVCast for our casting solution, Dynamite, which is a layer for Redis. And we're also like using vendor solutions, like, you know, a lot of relational, you know, database offerings from AWS. We have invested a lot into both open sourcing, some of our code, but also open supporting like some of the open source community. I mean, you know, an example we have, like a healthy number of Apache Cassandra committers in, in our database team. And of course, like we're, there are many projects that we're supporting the community as we use those products, both because we use them and we want to make sure that you know if there's a bug we can fix it. And but as well as you know we want to support back the open source community. There are many reasons that we also do like open sourcing, but I think fundamentally one of them is of course like the hiring, right? You know you can get really great you know engineers when they contribute to your project. You tend to know them better by the way they interface. Not only, not only about the technical skills, but also like some sort of a, you know how they collaborate, how they communicate and so forth. But it's also, I think there are also other benefits in my opinion, like for example, when somebody open source a project and then maintains that project properly and, open, properly and so forth, it becomes like an identity, right? You, know, you tend to have these external identities. So to some extent, you, know, you make yourself marketable in the future as well. So that's why we see like many ACs are excited about you know, open sourcing some of the projects. Another reason as well is that, you know, of course we run systems in productions that we have in the open source space. And, you know, many of these systems, you know, we want the community to contribute to them, you know, evolve and make them better so that, you know, we can, you know, they can fix back, we can fix back that we see, maybe, you know, we're going to see similar problems, but, you know, the more of our open source systems that are adopted by the community, the more we, you know, we're going to have like those commonalities between those different comments that use the same open source projects. And of course, like, as I said, you know, even there are like a number of projects that we have, you know, either donated to the Apache community or the, the Cloud Foundation community and so forth, so that, you know, we can effectively enlarge the community from just like Netflix engineers working on a project.
1: Yeah, I think you touched some very good points around open source and why it's important in a component. That's really, really, really interesting to hear, especially what you said about two things. One hiring, which is important, but the other is also like about what you mentioned about collaboration. That's uh, that's a super interesting. So in terms of like the the projects that you have on so far, and if you know, like which one is like the most successful in terms of adoption by the open source community so far from uh, Netflix?
2: I think there are a number of projects that, you know, have been successful. And to be honest with you, most of the most successful, one, I was not involved into them, <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, you know, out of the way, what I'm thinking right now, I think Spinnaker has been fairly successful as a, you know, multi-cloud continuous delivery platform. Metaflow is another recent example, which, you know, we recently, you know, spoken about publicly. So, you know, these are the two kind of main projects that come to my mind uh, right now that have been like very much a big success recently. And your favorite one that came out of your teams? Um, my favorite one. So I would say I have two favorite ones out of the fact that it was managing those teams, the key value stores on Netflix. So one of them is EVCast, which is our casting solution that we use on Netflix. And then the second one was Dynamite, which is like a proxy layer we use for some of the, or again, no key value stores that we have here at Netflix. I was part of the, when I joined Netflix, I was part of the Dynamite team for about two and a half years, helping this project, you know, contributing back to the open source. And I would say that it was really, really exciting to, you know, work when collaborating with a number of companies and open source users.
1: Mm, That's interesting. What was the initial need that made you, like, build Dynamite? You said Dynamite is is the cache on top of Redis, right?
2: Yeah, because I think back then, fundamentally speaking, Redis was a single-node system. I think later on with Redis Cluster, it became, like, again, like a multi-node system, but it was more like a master-slave system. Uh, like primary secondary system where, you know, it's great. It focuses a lot on, if you think about the CAP theorem of the consistency in partition tolerant, whereas Dynamite and Netflix a lot, mostly is focusing more on the availability side because a lot of what makes sense for the business is to make sure that, you know, we achieve like seven nines of availability. So that's why we wanted a system that, you know, would still have the properties of Redis, which is really amazing in terms of like a no key value store with advanced data structures and all the amazing work that Salvatore San Filippo has done, but still make it like, you know, highly available. And that's why we chose to build that, you know, kind of proxy layer above Redis. There are also like a few other things, like, you know, we were working on the Cassandra space for like many years now, again, another AP system, and we had substantial experience with the way the Dynamo protocol works. So a lot of like, you know, the sidecars and the components of the ecosystem were, you know, pretty easy or automation was kind of pretty easy to adapt with Dynamite based on
0: this architecture. Ionis, a question on internal projects, that's sort of more general, not necessarily about specific projects, but do you, what, what is the process like of deciding to undertake a project like, like Dynamite? Do you have lots of conversations about those things internally? And then as a follow-up, are there lots of things that you talk about that you don't end up building?
2: You know I think one of the great things about Netflix is the fact that a lot of the decision making is happening at you know the software engineering layer where and we have this notion of like informed captains. so yeah usually you know the informed captain brings up you know a business use case on why we need to build a product or a project and then you know tries to communicate that with a number of partners and tries to make sure that you know there is alignment that this is this will provide like you know substantial business value to the company and then and then continues like building the project to some extent and then trying to showcase through maybe a prototype that the value this, this project is going to have to the company. And then it then takes some sort of a natural way, I would say, by you know, the leadership team funding the project and then making like a successful project within the company.
1: So, Yanni, I mean, from your experience so far with uh, all these open source projects that you have published at Netflix and considering that many of these projects are the outcome of like very specific and at large scale like problems that Netflix has so i'm pretty sure that there are many people out there like other data engineers who are dealing with probably similar problems but like not at the same scale right So what's your advice towards like the people out there that they learn about these technologies and how they should use and try to adapt these technologies to the scale of problem that they have? Is there something like that you have seen or you have communicated like with the communities out there and what do you think is like important for someone to keep in mind when using all these projects that Netflix has is maintaining right now?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I have found even myself fairly challenging to really, you know, identify the right source of information overall. So I understand when people see many companies, including Netflix, open source, and other projects, is you know, which one is like the one that you know some person may want to invest. And you know, to be honest, in many cases, some of these projects are being built based on the advanced needs of, of, a, of a specific company. So, you know, if if I was starting new, you, you know, what we'll propose is you know, first understand the problem space, you know, before kind of going deeper in a specific solution. Again, unfortunately. I have not really found a great description about, you know, our space, which is kind of a data platforms other than I would say like a most recent post by Andreessen Horwitz about, you know, the high level architecture of data platforms. But, you know, and the second step would probably be like identify a project that is in an interesting area, maybe have like a healthy number of contributors that someone can collaborate and, and grow by learning from other people that are more experienced. And of course, like that project does not have to be like necessarily like a Netflix project, but you know, As I said, you know, if somebody would be interested in a Netflix project, you know, there are like a few of them that have a very healthy community around them. Like one of them is, as I said, Spinnaker, which is, as I said, a multi-cloud continuous delivery platform. And of course, like there are other projects that, you know, Netflix has been using. For example, we have been doing, you know, fairly a number of contributions on the memcast infrastructure and and many other projects as well, you know, that that other companies or other entities have built.
1: That's some great advice, I think. Cool. Thank you so much for that. So moving forward, and let's chat a little bit more about the data integration platform. Can you describe in a little bit more detail like what the data integration platform does and what's the problem behind it, why it's a problem like in Netflix, and what's like the solutions that uh, you have come up for these problems?
2: Yeah. So the data integrations team is like, I would say like a small, but very talented team, which effectively, you know, focuses in in building a number of integrations. The, the formation of the team initially was done, you know, based on the fact that we wanted to build some solutions in which we would be able to keep multiple data systems in sync. And so we started investing in building like change data capture solutions and connector, you know, for relational databases, like Postgres, MySQL, Aurora, Or, and most recently, about a year ago, we also started investing in the NoSQL space like Cassandra. The latter is a little more complicated because it has those, you know, characteristics of a multi-master eventually consistent uh, system. Actually, one of my team members gave a talk recently at QCon. So he spoke in the details about those for for people who are quite interested to listen about that. And of course, we have written a few blog posts about, you know, Delta and dblog, which is kind of the systems we have built. But at a high level, you know, we were seeing patterns that, you know, people were building, they they were having different data systems. They were trying to solve this problem with uh, some sort of multi-system transactions, which don't really work. Or even like with some sort of repair jobs when one of the systems was becoming inconsistent. So, you know, we tried to build some sort of solutions that would kind of not need to do that, but rather, you know, some sort of parse parse some sort of the log of a database you know, send this log through a streaming system and then send the data to another system that it's gonna be like your secondary system. But as, as, as our infrastructure evolved, you know, more services were actually using those, those like database integrations. And effectively, you know, we came towards a more high level project, which is now a project that, you know, many teams are working on, which is called the data mesh, which is more about, you know, centralizing a lot of how we move data between like different data systems. We also have like, we also started uh, in parallel like some sort of a, a different effort. We call it like the batch data movement effort, which the focus is more about how we efficiently move the data from like, you know, data warehouses to effectively to another like like key value store. So some sort of, you know, people can do like point queries over there. And of course, like, as I said, you know we've been working also in systems like, you know moving data from semi-structured rudimental systems like Airtable and Google Seats uh, to our data warehouse, so we can do some, you know, business analytics and, business, and build business intelligence on on top of that. So this is kind of the area where you know we have been investing with this team in the last about a year and a half from,
1: from now. Well, that's super interesting. So, I mean, I'm aware of like CDC technologies, like Bayesium, for example. I mean, based on my understanding, at least like the most common way of like performing CDCs is by attaching to the replication log or on the log mechanism that the database has, listen to the changes that they happen there and then replicate these like to another system. That's on a very high level on how CDC is usually implemented on a database. But you mentioned also Cassandra And you said that there are, like, specific challenges there because of the eventual consistency. You have, like, a multi-node environment and all that stuff. So can you give us a little bit more, like, information on the, like, how the CDC paradigm is implemented on, on something like Cassandra? And... Where do we stand on that? Like, do you have this like currently implemented and using it inside Netflix? And what are the, the differences and challenges there compared like to the more traditional CDC that we have seen on something like Postgres or MySQL?
2: Yeah, so so the CDC events from like NoSQL database, like you know, active active setups like Cassandra, they do have some like unique challenges in terms of like data partitioning and replication. So, and you know, most of the current CDC solutions for this rely on like running within the database cluster and providing a stream with like duplicate events. Our solution was was more focused on by like dedupling the stream in a stream processing framework. So effectively, you know, this involves having like a distributed copy of the source database in a stream processing framework like Apache Flink, which, you know, we use a lot of Netflix. And this enables to some extent a better handling of the CDC streams since we have like before and after images of like the road changes themselves. This is a little different from like the traditional CDC that you have seen in like, as I said, in Postgres and MySQL, MariaDB and other systems in which you have like a single stream of events that comes from a single node, which is kind of like your primary node. So as I said, yeah, it was a little more difficult to do it in Cassandra because of the challenges of like repartitioning partitioning and replication and so forth. And mainly was on the, the duplication of the events.
1: That's interesting. Do you, I mean, you mentioned that another thing that you are doing like recently is moving data out of the data warehouse and syncing these into a key value store, right? Two questions here. One is, what's the use case behind this? Like traditionally, I mean, data warehouse is considered mainly the destination of data, right? Like we collect the data that's doing some ETL and all that stuff, put it into the, the data warehouse. And from there, we do the analytics reporting. And that's like the traditional BI that we have. So what you're describing goes like a step beyond that. And you are actually want to pull the data out of the data warehouse and push it into a key value store. Like why why you want to do that? And what kind of data are these that you are pushing into the key value stores?
2: Yeah, so you know recently we we wrote about a system we developed we called it the Bulldozer in it's an interesting name. So as i said you know there are like many of services that have the requirement to do like a fast lookup for fine grain data which need to be generated like periodically. An example would be like enhancing our user experience on on like online application fetches of subscriber preference data to recommend movies and tv shows. And the truth is that, you know, data warehouses are not designed to serve those point queries, but rather the key value stores are designed to do that. Therefore, you know, we build like some sort of bulldozer as a system that can move the data from the data warehouse to a globally like low latency, you know, fairly reliable key value store. And, you know, we try to make a bulldozer some sort of a self-service platform that, you know, it can be used, you know, fairly easy about users by just, you know, effectively like working on on a configuration. You know, behind that, it uses like some of the ecosystem we call the Netflix scheduler, which is like some sort of scheduling framework built on top of Meson, which is a general purpose workflow orchestration system. And I guess the use cases include like members who want like predicted scores of data to help improve their personalized experience. Or it can be like metadata from Airtable to Google Sheets for data lifecycle management, or even like, you know, modeling data for messaging personalization. When you think about that case of like, or even it can be like, you know, when you want to run online machine learning, right? You can't you can do that on the data warehouse. You probably need that to do that on a key value store. When you think about though the, the CDC and the Delta concept, which I described below, it's, it's kind of different, right? Because it's actually the opposite direction, right? You, you move it from primary data store to a secondary, which that secondary could be a data warehouse. Whereas the bulldozer is more from the data warehouse to the key value store.
1: And how does this differ from the traditional like CDC approach or you see it as like the same thing just like flipping like the between the the destination and the source is like the methodologies like the same or because you have like to primarily pull data out of the data warehouse like things have to change.
2: Yeah, so I mean, if you think about the system where you pull the data of the dead house, you probably are going to do that in some sort of in a batch way. So you're going to read the data and take them out. Whereas more of the CDC ecosystem is focusing on the real time, parsing the data, parsing the log, and real time. Of course, like many people say, you know, what does really real time mean, right? Yeah. But what you need is in in the CDC aspect to really, you know, get the mutations that happen to the database pretty fast and then move it in another system. Because you know latency matters. On the other hand, when you move data from like your data warehouse to a key value store, the latency of actually moving those batches is 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 important, but it's not that important. What is important is the latency to access the data from yeah. the key value stores. So fundamentally speaking, the systems are totally different. One of them is, as I said, using like a scheduling framework called Meson. So sorry, sorry, a workflow orchestration framework called Meson, whereas the other one is more like the log, throwing to Kafka. And at the same time, the, throwing to Kafka and then also doing enrichments. Because what happens is, once you move the data from a primary source to secondary, you may want to enrich the data on the way by combining information from different other types of services, which eventually makes the the way you design microservices much simpler.
1: Mm-hmm, that's super interesting. That's really, really interesting. So. Uh, what do you use as a data warehouse, Netflix, I assume, I mean, is some kind of like this popular cloud data warehouses like Redshift or Snowflake, or you have something that was built like in-house?
2: So I think our data warehouse consists of a large number of data sets that are, you know, they're stored in, a, in Amazon S3, you know, via hive. we use Druid, Elasticsearch, Redshift, Snowflake, MySQL. You know our platform supports like anything like from spark presto Big, hive and, and many other systems right so it's not just a system it's it you know it's 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 multiple systems that, that we
1: use. Okay. And Bulldozer can interact with all these different systems?
2: Well right now the way we put the data is we pull the data you know out of like in an iceberg format right uh-huh. And then, you know, and then we send the data to the key value store. So, effectively, we pull the data out of, like, S3 packets and then in a nice pair format, and then we throw them to the key value. To so actually, we use an abstraction of the key value stores, and then
1: through that, then it's being sent to the key value stores, like a caching system. Oh, okay. That's interesting. So, you have, like, the different, like, what we say as like, a data warehouse, like Redshift and Spark and, like, all these... Different technologies, but at the end you uh, sync all this data that they leave there on S3 using Iceberg, and Bulldozer comes after Iceberg to pull the data from there and push it back to the key value stores that you want through this abstraction layer that you have built. Right.
2: Right. So Iceberg effectively comes after after Iceberg. That's correct.
1: After the way we start. All right. That's 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 great. So. We have talked about like data sources so far that are like like, traditional like data basis systems or data processing systems like Kafka or uh, Spark. How do you also work? I know that you're very microservices pro at Netflix. Do microservices also play a role in all this process? Is something that like, for example, you consider like CDC implemented also on top of like microservices, like pulling data or events from there and moving it around? Or that's like something that the team does not work with or you don't utilize, or there's no reason to do that like in uh, Netflix in terms of like the architecture in general that you have.
2: So, you know, Delta or those CDC events, right? And the platform, Delta platform is not just the CDC. It's also like the way we do enrichments and the way we talk to other services to get information is, has simplified a lot of the way we, a lot of like the microservice we do, we use, but you know, Of course, like the microservice communication happens, like so gRPC or S10 points and so forth, which is kind of a different thing. But, you know, if you think about, you know, how we used to implement some things in terms of like, the way we communicate with microservices, there are like Delta can simplify parts of that. And an example will be, I'll give you an example, let's say for like a movie service, right, where, you know, for a movie service, you know, we want to effectively find information from different microservices, like let's say the deal service or the talent service or the vendor service. But in this like, and then we what we used to do in the past, we used to have this, this polling system that would actually pull this information from the movie search database, from the DL service, from the talent service, from the vendor service, and then combine them and then send them and then send them to the derived data source. You know, with with the Delta itself, what we have done is we have simplified a lot this architecture by effectively instead of like polling the database itself, the movie search data store, what we do is we have the connector service that are pulling the the mutations from the data store. And then the Delta application itself does the queries with all the services without really needing to build like a polling service. So in this architecture, which we also described in the blog post of Delta, it has substantially simplified the way we do microservices in some areas of the business itself, which is mainly on the content side.
1: Super interesting. I mean, I think we need another episode just to discuss about that. And they'll probably also like use a, a search screen or something because uh, I think we are getting on a lot of like the complexity that an infrastructure like Netflix has. But that's super, super interesting. So, Yanni, okay, we are close to the end of the episode. Like two questions for you before the end. So one is you mentioned a lot Bulldozer and Delta. Are uh, any parts of these open sourced right now, or do you plan like to open source some parts of these projects? I think you know uh, the way that I think
2: like most data systems going to evolve. It's going to be like systems of systems, where, where you know you're going to be using those open source components to build those systems. So like an example would be that Delta is using underneath like Apache Flink and Apache Kafka. Sorry, Flink and Apache Kafka. And then, and then there's also the CDC aspect, which, you know, we were thinking of actually open sourcing that. We haven't been to the state where we're ready to open source it, but this is something that we're seriously considering on, on the CDC aspect. But, you know, open sourcing the whole platform does really make sense because, you know, it's, it's kind of a comprised of, of many systems. And Absolutely. I guess, similarly, Bulldozer, we wrote a blog post about a month ago about how Bulldozer works, trying to like push the license out to the community so we can receive that feedback, but, you know, open sourcing that, again, it's, it's probably opinionated to how we do things at Netflix. So I'm not confident it does have like a value to be open sourced to some extent. But, you know, whenever we think that something is like, hey, it's, it's, it's an entity that can be open sourced, then definitely this is the focus we're going to usually move
1: forward with. Yeah, makes total sense. And last question. What do you think are the next data platform problems or challenges that the industry is going like to spend time and resources in general to solve? What are some interesting problems that you see out there that haven't been um, addressed yet or just that they just, you know, like happened because of the evolution of the industry?
2: Yeah, I think there's like, I think there's like a number of interesting problems that, you know, we're going to see in, in, in the near future about in the data platform. One of them, you know, is is data governance in terms of like, you know, looking at you know, data quality, data detection. How do you build you know, insights about the data? How do you catalog the data? You know, how do you do lineage? And what we have seen around the industry is that you know, there are like many you know, separate solutions that addresses each of these problems. But you know, I'm curious to see if there's a solution that can actually address this in, in, in a more total way. And the other aspect that we're investing heavily here at Netflix is the notion of data mess, where you know we want to abstract a lot of the aspects of the data platform. And you know instead of like people you know, developing their own pipelines, we want to provide you know, that abstraction layer so it can be like a more centralized you know, pipeline to some extent with all the features that the users are need, need. So that's why I think like some sort of the data platform problems will start to become more of like a high level than they are today, which is like data warehouses and databases.
1: That's great. That's some great insights in what is happening in the industry right now. Yanni, thank you so much. I mean, we could keep uh, chatting for at least another hour, but I think we have reached like the limit of our time for this episode. Thank you so much for spending this time and sharing all this valuable information with us. And uh, yeah, personally, I'm really looking forward to see to meet you again in the future and like discuss more about like whatever interesting stuff you will be doing in the future.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, that was. An absolutely fascinating conversation and uh, just the types of problems that they have to face at Netflix because of the scale and just to hear about things that even things like team structure where the streaming team dealing with the distribution of assets, whereas Jonas's team uh, you know, deals with sort of collecting and storing and making available those assets. Yeah, most companies, those are the same teams. It was just so interesting to learn about that. What stuck out to you, Costas, as sort of the major takeaways?
1: There are a couple of things, actually. I was very impressed of uh, like the size of the teams. First of all, we are talking about pretty small teams, if you think about it, Uh, but they are taking care of such like a huge infrastructure. And I mean, both the storage infrastructure that they have and also the analytics infrastructure that they have. That was very interesting to see how uh, these small teams can be so agile and so effective. The other thing which I guess it's not only characteristic of Netflix, but other companies of their size is like how many different technologies are involved. Pretty much they use across the whole organization, like every data product that exists out there, every possible data warehouse technology from cloud to on-prem and At the same time, they are still have to be, let's say, on the state of the art of things and build their own technology to support their needs. So that was very, very interesting. And I think that's a big benefit of like observing what these companies are doing is because you can take a glimpse of the future, let's say, of what problems data engineers will have to deal in the future. And the other thing is open source. They are contributing a lot on open source. They have like a many projects that they maintain out there and quite interesting projects also but at the same time like probably the complete data stack that they have is based on open source solutions so uh, and they contribute back again like we heard janis uh, for example saying about the contribution to cassandra like they have like quite a few committers in the company that they're committing back to to cassandra so these are the things that i found like extremely interesting another thing that i would like to ask everyone to pay some attention is the concept of cdc they are really investing a lot on implementing solutions on top of cdc and it's something that i think we will be hearing more and more about like in the near future and of course uh, that's something that we discussed also with devaris from roxa if you remember i mean his company and his product is all about uh, cdc and i think that this is like a term that we will
0: hear more and more in the near future Great, well thank you so much again for joining us on the Data Stack Show and we will catch you next time.